Lord willing, to Turkey or northwest China uh, to serve Muslims again. So he'll be coming, and he'll be sharing from Acts chapter 5 in two weeks from now. So if you notice, uh, today our passage is actually uh, Acts chapter 6. We just finished the early portions of Acts chapter 5, and I just mentioned that Pastor James Chow will be coming to preach from Acts chapter 5. So we're kind of jumping around a little bit. And there is a method uh, to this madness. And just to recap where we are, uh, we established that in the book of Acts, that the main central theme is that the gospel is going to be spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So we're going to see the church grow. And we're going to see the gospel start to be reached to these ends of the earth. And now once that happens through the church, we saw that there is going to be opposition. We saw that there was persecution from outside of the church. The Jewish leaders were trying very hard to stop the apostles from preaching the gospel. The second opposition we saw was the one that happened inside the church, one of deception, where its own believers were being hypocritical, and they're deceiving others, that prevented the gospel from being spread. And so we're going to continue along that line, and this is the third way that we see that Satan specifically prevents the gospel from being spread. So first was persecution, the second was deception, and the third we see in our passage is distraction. This is how Satan prevents his church God's church from spreading the gospel message. And now, if you look and consider what Satan is doing here, he's being very clever. Because the first one, the first persecution, very obvious that there is opposition going on. The second was more deceptive, happening inside of the church's own walls. And now this is the most deceptive of them all because it's simply being distracted away, apart from gospel work. A commentator, he writes, the devil's next attack was the cleverest of the three, having failed to overcome the church by either persecution or corruption, he now tried distraction. And if he could preoccupy the apostles with social administration, which though was essential, it was not their calling, they would neglect their God-given responsibilities to pray and to preach. So in light of this opposition, Opposition of distraction. How are we as a church, as we start to establish ourselves at Renewal Mainline, what are some things that we must keep in mind? There's two headings for this morning. The first one is that with gospel growth, it requires growing pains. It requires growing pains. And the second heading is that with gospel growth, that we must have gospel priority. So to help you think of GP, growing pains, Gospel priority, and that's going to guide our passage this morning. So with that introduction, let's bow our heads and ask God for his help as we study his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you that you are with us. And God, we're not simply saying that because it sounds good, but we can step back and say, God, you are bringing our church to fruition. And we know you will. Give us the faith. Help our eyes to see, Lord, that your church will be established because you have a heart for those. For those who don't know you, God, use us. 
Use us as a church so that your name will be glorified here and to the ends of the earth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we see in verse 1 that the disciples were increasing in number. And we're not talking about the 12 original disciples. We're past that. The number of believers we have now is they're in the thousands. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came and the apostles preached the gospel. 3,000 came to faith that day. A few days afterwards, through prayer, through the bold preaching of the gospel, 2,000 were added. So at the very least, we have 5,000 men, probably a lot more, including women and children. So we're not talking about 12. We're talking about thousands of believers here. Now, with gospel growth, something we must realize is that there will be growing pains. As the church grows in their gospel-spreading movement, there will inevitably be growing pains. And we have to keep in mind that there are so many uh, Christians at this time without a stable structure to maintain this church. How many leaders were at this church at this time? Twelve apostles. And if you think about the number of believers and the number of leaders, of course it's going to be very difficult, very difficult to maintain administration. Even though they oftentimes met at the temple, where do you think they met to study the word and to pray and to fellowship? They met at homes. Think about thousands of thousands of people scattered, meeting in various homes, studying the word, praying, having fellowship together, and to think the administrative uh, uh, responsibilities for that. It must be outrageous. And to keep in mind that there are only 12 apostles doing this. Organize everything. So of course there are going to be these growing pains. Of course there's going to be people overlooked. There's going to be things mistaken. There are going to be people that's going to be excluded because of this administrative task. And why else do we see these growing pains? Well, first we see that the church was involved in providing for those in need. If you remember last week, we saw that the church, that people within the church, that they would willingly sell their possessions and bring their earnings laid at the apostles' feet so that they could distribute it to all of those who are less fortunate, to those who are in need. Now, if you think about what's going on, people are selling their possessions, they're bringing money to the apostles, and the apostles have to distribute them in a way where all those in need are being taken care of. That means they have to record the money, They have to allocate it, go to the bank. They have to go to the market, buy the food, prepare the food, distribute it to those in need. It requires a lot of work for these 12 apostles. So what's bound to happen is there is going to be mistakes, hiccups. There are going to be people forgotten. This is exactly what we see. A commentator writes, imagine the church being something of a very small industry. That's what was required for all those in need to be taken care of. And now a group of people that were being overlooked here were the widows. Were the widows. And not just the general group of widows, but specifically the Greek widows, the Hellenist widows. Because during this time at the church, there are two groups of Christians inside this early church. 
We're not at the point where the gospel reached the nations yet. We're not at the point where the gospel had gotten to the Gentiles. So we're talking about Jewish Christians. And amongst these Jewish Christians, there are two groups of people. The first ones are the native Jews, the ones who speak Aramaic. And on the other hand, we have these Greek-speaking Jews, the ones who immigrated to other parts of the Roman Empire. So even though ethnically they were Jews, culturally speaking, they were very Greek, Hellenistic. It's kind of a lot of, a, a lot of our parents for those who have immigrated from Europe or from Asia. They go to different places. Ethnically, they might be of one culture, but in practice, they are of another culture. And so we see these two groups of Christians inside the early church. Now, where we are in this point of the story is we're still in Jerusalem. So if you can guess, do you think there's going to be more Greek-speaking Jews or Aramaic native Jews? It's going to be the latter. Because Jerusalem's the hometown of the Jews. That's where they're originally from. And so what was happening was that a lot of these Jews, they were immigrating to different parts of the Roman Empire. You can see a map that I provided They were all over the place. They were scattered all throughout the empire. And now as a widow, what happens is you go into these far out places and say that your husband passes away and you have no one to care for you. What are you going to do? You're going to go back home. You're going to go back home to where you might have relatives, where you might have people that might care for you. And for a lot of these widows, they're at the end of their lives. And the mindset was that if I'm going to be buried somewhere, I want to be buried in my hometown, in the holy city of Jerusalem. And these widows, they weren't just this small group of people. They were many. Some scholars think that about 40 to 50% of all women above 40 were widows at this time. So we're not talking about a small group of people. We're talking about a large group of widows in need. Now, as these Hellenistic widows came back to Jerusalem, they're being overlooked. Because in Jerusalem, you're going to have people speaking the same language, reaching out to those in need in their own community groups, in their own divisions. And then we see these Greek-speaking widows being overlooked. It's similar to my grandfather when he immigrated here, uh, having no wife at that point, after we all went to college, after all the family went to different places. Nothing against Downingtown, Pennsylvania. There's just nothing for him there. So he went back to his hometown. And that's what we see going on. But after coming back, we see that the early church, they're very active in providing for those in need. And so the Hellenistic widows, they want to be a part of that, but they're being overlooked, overlooked in this daily distribution of food and provisions. Now, what do we see? How do the apostles respond? Do they say, you know what, it's just something that we can't do administratively. They just have to be overlooked. At least we're taking care of some widows. Aren't we doing some good? They don't respond in that way. On the other hand, they're not saying, okay, we have to do more. We have to take upon these responsibilities ourselves and work a little bit harder. That's not what we see. What we see is that the apostles, they gather the whole congregation. They bring the full number of disciples to them, and he says, and they say, 
you have to take care of your own people. It's not something that we can do. Practically speaking, and also scripturally speaking, it is not our task. And I think we can learn a lot about this. Because the apostles, they're not saying that we're above this kind of work. They say that you have to serve tables. You know, today I think there's a connotation with that where it's a demeaning kind of work, but that's not the connotation it had back then. Because that word serving tables, it's also called diakonos, which means ministry. So if you want to translate it literally is, you have to do the ministry of the table while we do the ministry of what? The word. So it's not putting one above the other. They're both of equal importance, but they're designating that it is a different kind of work that you must do and a different kind of work that we must do. And I think this is a good reminder for us as a church. Because as we're starting to worship, as we're starting to establish ourselves as a new congregation, there are going to be growing pains. There are going to be administrative tasks. There are going to be ministries that just seem lacking. And we can look at all of these needs and we can become frustrated. We can become very discouraged even. But the truth of the matter is, that's the nature of church. As the church grows, there will be growing pains. You know, it's been about a month or so since we started worshiping in this place. And each time I think back about all that God has been doing for us to get to this point, I'm amazed. Two months ago, we had no idea where we were going to worship. We've been worshiping here now for over a month, and we have ministries represented by those from Renewal Devon, represented by those from Renewal West Philly, people taking ownership. I don't know about you, but I'm thanking God, the one who brings people from all different places to establish his church in a much-needed place like here and in your neighborhoods. And I agree, there are a lot of needs in our church now. Believe it or not, I have a running list of things that we must take care of. We need a diaconate. We need a college pastor. We need a youth group pastor. We need a senior pastor. We need a lot of ministries. Believe me, I have a running list. But at the same time, I have to remind ourselves, as I'm reading this passage, it will take time. There will be growing pains. There will be mistakes And it's not because of any blatant sin that we've done. It's not like Ananias and Sapphira where they actively sinned against God. That's just the nature of ministry. But of course we're all going to say yes and amen to all the things that we see, all the things that we need. But we have to recognize, in order to get there, it's going to require a little bit of pain, a little bit of sacrifice, And as I talk to other people in our church, it seems like the running phrase of renewal mainline, believe it or not, is the word of trust the process, then reflecting the Sixers mentality. You know, and I agree with that. It's been a process, and we're still in the middle of this process. At the very least, I was like, at least add something uh, Christian in there. So maybe we can add God's process, at least trust God's process. We will get there. And I'm excited. Yes and amen to all the things that we see in our church that we need. But where is our focus going to be? 
Is it going to be on our current situation and say, look at all these things that we're lacking, or are we going to have our eyes in the future of not what we already are, but what we are becoming? You know, a favorite pastor friend of mine, his favorite quote is, become who you already are in Christ. Become who you already are in Christ. In God's eyes, one who is outside of time, when he looks at our church, he doesn't look at all the various needs. He looks at its finished product. Ephesians 5, perfect and holy and blameless is the church going to be. Isn't that the gospel? Isn't that how God looks at you? Not looking at your current sins and your current mistakes and your current inadequacies. How does God look at us? He looks at the finished product. And that's what motivates his heart. Not who you are now, but who you are becoming. And it is guaranteed that in Christ you will be holy and blameless and perfect. We have to keep that in mind as a church. I know many of you from West Philly, as you guys come here, you're looking forward to the intimate relationships, especially in light of West Philly, where you can get so easily lost. And maybe you did come and you realized, you know what, it's not that much more intimate. I'm still lost. I don't even know some of my own brothers and sisters from West Philly here. And maybe for those who are at Devon, You're looking back at the, oh, look at all the intimate times we had every Sunday where every Sunday I got to speak with every single person. But now, you barely talk to two or three after church on Sundays. Maybe you missed that. And maybe it's going to require some growing pains. Or you might have to actively reach out to people Monday through Saturday if you want to maintain relationships with them. Maybe it's going to require for your community groups to really be the way that you can connect with people, actually showing up and being there for people instead of waiting for one hour and a half for the church to supply your needs. That's growing pains. And through growing pains, that's how God develops his church. That's the crux of the Christian faith that to get to that point, that he's going to grow in us, and it is going to hurt. Isn't it Jesus who said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls and dies and perishes, after it dies, then we bear and we reap the fruit of that seed. In Mark chapter 12, John chapter 12. Likewise, we have to die to ourselves. It is going to take sacrifice. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's not going to look all that perfect. But if we look at to see what we are becoming, and if you are a part of that, I hope that all of us can one day look back to see and say, you know what, I was a part of that ministry. There is nothing greater than that feeling. To be a part of something that God is doing and look at the finished product and look back and see how God had used you for that ministry. You know, one example I use all the time is our beloved uh, college pastor at Reno West Philly, Pastor Dan Wang. Um, I was about to show a picture of him with braces and pimples on his face when he was a first-year seminary student. I was, I think, 16 years old at that time. But at that time, we went to the University of the Sciences when there were about two people there at our church. And I remember walking around with him, praying for the campus, knowing that God is going to establish his presence at that school. Now, if you look, I have a picture here. That ministry has grown. 
It's the largest Christian organization at that school, period. And it's connected to our church. And we're reaping the fruits of that ministry even now. Our youth group teachers are from that ministry. One of our elders is from this ministry. Two people from that ministry have committed to going long-term missions with me and Pastor Charles. One of them even married one of our pastors at very much practical fruit right there. But the beauty of it is when I go back onto that campus with Pastor Dan, and we look back and we say, remember that time? It was just you, me, and these two brothers. Look at what God's doing now. And even today, I get emails from former USP students who are well advanced in their age now emailing us saying, thank you so much for the ministry that you've done at my school. God's going to do this here. He's going to do this in your community groups. The only question that we have to ask, do you want to be a part where you can go back and say, wow, I was a part of that. I hope that all of us can experience that. There's nothing greater. There's nothing greater. There will be growing pains, but let's keep our eyes at the finished product. The second point, gospel growth requires gospel priority. It requires gospel priority. Here, I just want to give three quick applications, three things that we can do practically to make sure that this gospel remains priority. Well, first, even that heading in itself, the gospel growth requires gospel priority. It seems very obvious, right? If you want to grow in the gospel, of course you have to keep the gospel at its center. But oftentimes, we can be distracted from the gospel. Oftentimes, we can be more attracted to the implications of the gospel than the gospel itself. Let me explain. There's three things here. The first thing that we see that the apostles do is that they designate the ministry to its right place. They designate each ministry to its right place. It's not as if they disregard the widows, the Greek-speaking widows. James chapter 1 says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So it's not as if God neglects this obvious need, but he responds to it. But the way that they do it is the apostles, they gather all the believers, and here's what they do. We give you the authority to find people within the congregation full of the spirit of good repute and to appoint them to do this work. And they look around. They start talking. They start considering who's gifted, who's able to do these things, and they present these men to the apostles. What do the apostles do? They just appoint. They don't do anything else. They just say, you have our blessing. Go. And it's effective. If you look at all the names of those people that they chose, those are Greek names. None of them are Jewish names. Meaning that the congregation, they thought, okay, who would be best in making sure that their widows are being taken care of? How about this Greek-speaking brother? How about this guy, Philip, from Antioch, who probably knows a lot of the widows? They took their brains together and they figured a way out to solve this problem. 
saying that it is our job to serve the tables, to do the ministry of the table so that the apostles can do the ministry of the word. Not as if one ministry is more important than the other but they designate each ministry to the right people. John Stott, he says, neither ministry is superior to the other. On the contrary, both are Christian ministries. They are ways of serving God and his people. And note, both of them require spirit-filled believers. Both of them. Not just the pastors, but the ones serving to those in need. So that means that we have to make sure that the ministry of the word is protected and is upheld by the leadership of our church. That's very important for us to establish as renewal. When first-year seminary students come to school, I spend some time with them, kind of giving out a guideline of how to expect their curriculum. And, you know, one of the things that they always tell me is that they're very surprised at ministry. Because when they come into seminary, they have this idea that church ministry is going to be about preaching passionate messages, executing uh, executing these great ministries, having these intimate counseling sessions when there's breakthrough and all of these things, but then they come to a very stark realization that a lot of ministry is spent at your desk. Probably more than 80% of your time just staring in front of a blank computer screen, just asking God, what do you want your people to know this week? And it's a very huge surprise for them. That you have to spend countless of hours just perusing through books, struggling over this biblical phrase, what does this mean? That's the main job of the pastor, the preaching of the word. John Owen, he said that the first and principal duty of the pastor is to to feed the flock by the preaching of the word. This is by teaching and preaching and no otherwise. He who does not he who cannot, or he who will not, is no pastor. Whatever the outward call or work he may have in the church. That's why Jesus told Peter, what were his last words to Peter? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. And Satan knows this. That if God, through his apostles, through his teachers and pastors, feed his sheep... That's how the church is going to grow. And Satan's going to do whatever he can to stop that designation, to stop that role and responsibility of the teachers and pastors to teach the word. And personally, I can say our church has been really good at this. There are many times where people come up to me and say, Pastor Luke, don't do this. I'll take care of this. Don't do this. I'll do this. I'll take care of this. You know, you would think that I would listen to that and be encouraged and, you know, say, okay, I can take a break now, but I'm more convicted because when they say that, you know what it means? I have to go back to that desk (laughs) and I have to stare at that computer screen. It's not an excuse for me to rest. It means that I have to go back to what I'm assigned to do, is to put my nose in that Bible and to ask God, what do you want your people to know this week? It's often a surprise for us that this is what the job of the pastor is supposed to do. But if you look in our passage, look at verse 4. There's another thing that they're supposed to do. And what comes first? Prayer. 
that they are supposed to devote their time to prayer and preaching of the word. And do you notice that prayer comes first? Why is that? Because it's that important for the pastors of our church to pray for all of you. You know, Christianity Today, a magazine, they did a survey. And on average, the average American pastor prays about three minutes a day. And I'm thinking that's three meals, right? Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Why is that? Why is it so hard? If you read a journal entry of a pastor, David Brainerd, who outreached to the Native Americans in this Appalachian area, this is one of his journal entries. He writes, This morning, I spent about two hours in sacred duties and was enabled more than ordinarily to agonize for immortal souls. And although it was early in the morning and the sun scarcely shone at all, yet my body was quite wet with sweat because he was praying for his members. That humbles me a lot every time I read that journal entry. Because if you ask me, what's the most difficult times of ministry? It's not staring at that screen or having these difficult counseling sessions or running around picking this up or that. The hardest time is Tuesday morning when I have to wake up, pick up this iPad, and I open my Google Sheet. It has all your names on it. I have to look at your names. I have to get on my knees. I have to pray. That's the most difficult time. Why is that? Because Satan knows. Satan knows that's how the gospel is going to be established at our church. Samuel Chadwick writes, Satan dreads nothing but prayer. His one concern is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Community group leaders, fellow brothers and sisters, those who are involved in ministry, we must pray. Satan trembles at that. Amen? A couple more applications, and we'll go quickly here. The second application is that all of us, We have to take ownership of the needs that we see at our church. We have to take ownership of the needs that we see at our church. Commentator writes, In sum, this passage shows that the community uses its own people to solve its own problems. The community hears the complaint, owns up to the problem, and allows those closest to it to delegate the authority to get it done, and then goes to work. And that's the model of how the church needs to address our needs, the ministry of the table. It involves everyone. It requires for us, those who are close with one another, to think, actively think, how is this brother gifted? What can I do to connect this brother and his giftedness to the church so that others are blessed by that? If you think like that, wow. Everyone involved. It made sense for our church. Because as I'm thinking, I'm thinking, God, why are we starting this church? We don't even have a senior pastor. We don't have a diaconate. We don't have a college pastor. We don't have so many things. Why are we starting now? We didn't even have a building. As I'm reading this passage, it makes sense. So that we learn how to share one another's burdens. 
and that we learn to take ownership of this church. Now, I shared this story before, but once when my dad was carrying groceries into the house, you know, I asked him, Dad, do you need help? And he just looked at me, and he went inside. And I was like, proud Korean. But that wasn't why. Later, he sat me down, and he said, Luke, are these groceries mine, or are they yours? And I had to respond, ours. And he says, if they are yours, why do you need to ask? Do you need to ask yourself, Luke, do you need to eat breakfast? Do you need to ask yourself, Luke, do you need to clean your room? You just do it. Because you're not a guest in this house. What's mine is yours. When you do the dishes, you're not doing the dishes for me or your mom. You're doing your own. Everything in this house is yours. Take ownership of it. You don't need to ask. That's the same with our church. You don't have to ask. By all means, do what you think is necessary. You have my blessing. There are people at Pastor Jonathan Edwards' church who kind of gave this kind of sermon, and they came up to him and said, oh, you know what? I wish I could. There's just so much going on in my life right now. There's so much burden, so much suffering. I wish I could give financially, but it would be too much of a burden for us right now. And Edward says, that's the point. It's when you're actually in burden and then sharing one another's burden. That's the point. You're not supposed to share someone else's burden when you have none. Do you see? When you are in suffering, when it is hard, when you are busy, and then you share one another's burdens, that's how it works. And you know what happens after that? Something amazing happens. Let me explain it this way. My wife, her most free days are Tuesday mornings. She doesn't have to watch any kid. She just has to, you know, take care of things she needs to do. Tuesday mornings, I'm very blessed. I see a smoothie at my desk. Very healthy. Kale, some other stuff, I don't know. <laughs> and I drink it, and I'm very thankful. I tell her, thank you so much. Also, there are times on Thursday mornings when I see the same smoothie at my desk, but it's different. Because Thursday, she has to leave the house by 7 a.m. Because she has to watch a kid from 8 to 12. Even though it's the same exact kind of smoothie, for some reason, that Thursday smoothie tastes a lot better. Why? Because I know that she is very busy that day. And I know that she has a lot of things to do, but yet, she takes the time to make this simple act of kindness to me. And it tastes that much better. That's not the end of the story. You know what happens? Thursday's my busiest days too. But because I see that in her burden, that she took on more of my burden, that I want to return the favor. Guess who cooks dinner that night? I cooked dinner that night, even though I have meetings. And then what happens after that? She knows that Thursdays are my most busiest days. Do you think, what, what do you think she does? She washes the dishes. Do you see what happens? When you know that my brother is in much need and much desperate situation, yet I see him carry my burden, what does that do? Gospel growth. We must take ownership. It's going to taste that much better when our church is established. Finally, last application, we have to treasure the gospel. 
treasure the gospel. And it seems very simple, right? But let me remind us that we can oftentimes be attracted to all the implications of this gospel. When we look at other believers and they have this inward peace, a lot of the times we can say, that's what I want. When we look at other parents' kids and they see their kids being raised so well, they're so Christian, we say, okay, I want that. Those are gospel implications. And sometimes we can want those things more than the gospel message itself, the fact that we are sinners deserving God's wrath, and by grace you are saved. And I pray that our church, that many of us, many outside of our church, will be blessed by all of these gospel implications. Great fellowship, a great welcoming and hospitable community group, people who suffer and they walk life with one another. But I pray that it will never replace the centrality of the gospel, the fact that you are a sinner, you need God, he came for you. And when you do that, once you do that, people come and they're attracted by this. In our passage, we see for the first time at the last verse that there were priests who came to faith. Priests. Do you remember who the priests were? They're the ones who opposed the gospel. They're the ones who told Peter and John, stop preaching the name of Jesus. What do we see now? Those who oppose the gospel, they're coming to faith. Why do you think that happened? They saw the implications of the gospel. They saw that daily they were distributing to those in need. They saw that each other was carrying each other's burden. And at the end of the day, they saw that they needed Christ through those things. And the word of God increased greatly. And the number of believers increased as well. And as a final encouragement, maybe I can give you this hope. Now, this week was a very difficult week uh, for many of us at our church. Uh, There are funerals, uh, signs and news of sicknesses. Also, there are weddings. And also, good news from various families. Very emotional. Isn't it funny how every time you go and you experience something big, some big event, whether it be a wedding or something like that, that your perspective changes. Kind of have more of an eternal perspective. Start thinking about what's going to happen after this life. You start thinking about what's really important. And I think we have to make sure that we ask that question every day, personally, Ecclesiastes says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And the gospel says that if you place your trust and faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, then you have fulfilled your whole duty in this life. And there's the promise of eternal life for you. It has to be your gospel. You have to treasure it can't be someone else's. It has to be something that you can say, it is mine. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, man, woman, there is in you something bigger than the world. Do you not feel sometimes that there is that within you crying out for something divine? Something screaming for the infinities? That's your soul. That's your spiritual being. You can hear that sometimes at funerals, at weddings, at the news of something tragic. That's the heart of the matter. If we think about this every day of our lives as a church, 
I think we will keep the gospel in the center. Because for me, I'm prone to wander, prone to leave the one I love. But every morning, we have to speak to ourselves. And John Flavel, he says, every time that we wake up, that your soul is looking to feed itself from something outside of itself. And if you don't fill it with Christ, it's going to fill it with earthly things. So the first thing that we must do, he says, speak to your heart. Saying, heart, soul, you are made in the image of God. That your priority today is not to do this, not to do this, not to get this done, not to somehow fulfill you in these earthly ways, but is to have your soul happy in the Lord. That's our job. Treasure the gospel. And all the implications will come forth, all the implications for our church. Let's not forget these, especially as we enter this November, as we establish ourselves as Renewal Mainline, to keep the centrality of the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. At this time, uh, we'll enter a time of prayer, and I'll give you an opportunity uh, just to pray in your own hearts. And I'll ask you to pray. Pray that you will keep the gospel at your center. If you're asking, why am I doing this? Why am I serving? Why am I making sacrifices to come to this church when I was very comfortable and everything was going well? Ask why. And I pray that Jesus will come up. And he's the reason why. Let's pray that.